Just look at the load I'm hauling Hard work, I hit it harder Ain't nothing new for a backwoods farmer Sun up to sundown Backing up traffic all the way to town Camo hat and a farmer's tan Welcome to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group, your innovative consumer resource and marketing partner of choice for the evolving agricultural community. Now, here's your host, Brent Adams. Well, welcome to another episode of Fast Line Fast Track. We're awful glad you're with us. On this episode, we hear from U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue about his trade mission to the EU and his thoughts on the coronavirus sweeping China. We'll also take you back to the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention in Austin, Texas, to talk mental health on the farm with Adrian DeSutter and Ag Statistics with the USDA's Joe Parsons. We'll also talk with Jeff Watson about AGI SureTrack's farm management software, and we'll talk to Sherry Saylor about the American Farm Bureau Federation Women's Leadership Committee partnership with Ronald McDonald House Charities. Then we'll take you to Hank Snow's iconic Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee for the music of traditional country music star Paul Bogart. You won't want to miss a moment of this one. Let's go. First up this week, on Wednesday, January 29th, U.S. Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue held a conference call with the media to discuss a trade mission he was participating in in the European Union. He talked about the nuances of trade talks with the EU and weighed in on the coronavirus. Here are some of the highlights of that call. We're here in uh, Rome, having been in Brussels at the EU and uh, uh, and also in the Netherlands. So we've had good meetings uh throughout Europe, uh, very encouraging, and uh, we had a great visit with the World Food Program and uh, Governor Beasley as executive director today and got uh, a great vision of what they're doing. During the call, Purdue was asked how pathogen treatment for poultry factors into trade negotiations. In the past, the EU has refused to receive some chicken exported by the U.S. that has been processed using certain pathogen reduction treatments, such as antimicrobial rinses, including chlorine. I think uh, initially we're looking at uh, SBS issues of which there's a pretty significant list. We think they can get uh, very close to equalizing our trade balance uh, between the two uh, entities if they do that. Uh, And obviously uh, our pathogen treatment for poultry would be part of that. Uh, We've been very clear this week that uh, we believe that the pathogen reduction treatment that we use, parasitic acid, is a very safe product that's acknowledged worldwide, and obviously our U.S. consumers uh, consume it all the time and consume the chicken that's been uh, uh, used that way, as well as those guests who uh, visit from Europe, and uh, nonetheless for the wear. Purdue then talked about negotiating the matter of geographical indications in food labeling. GIs are a type of intellectual property right which identify a food, beverage, or other item as originating in the territory of a country or region to which a given quality, reputation, or other characteristic of the good is attributable. Yes, they have been part of the concerns. They're still very proud of their geographical uh, indicators uh, over that. We've communicated the fact that uh, the United States of America was settled for a large part by European immigrants who came and uh, used the same language as they used in Europe over these products from where they were. And uh, we feel like they are generic in scope and have no basis in uh, trademarks or uh, those kind of things. They obviously feel differently and have tried to promulgate that around the world with their free trade agreements. We don't necessarily agree with that. And uh, we would like to see those uh, items uh, not be um, 
included in any trade agreement. I pointed out, frankly, some of the uh, hypocrisy of that issue in that uh, uh, Greece is known for its feta cheese, and uh, there's not really a feta Greece, but there's certainly not a feta France, where France exports feta cheese to the United States, but they cannot export it internally within the EU. So that's uh, some of the hypocrisy over geographical indicators that we pointed out to them uh, in that way. The secretary then was asked about what EU trade demands the U.S. was willing to negotiate in order to secure a new trade deal. I think the two examples they continually bring up on an ongoing basis are the apples and pears and the pre-clearance. We, we do allow apples and pears from Europe into the United States, but they want the pre-clearance aspects of all their apples and pears, primarily from Poland, and then uh, certainly sheep and goats over their their issues. We're very, I think we're very close to resolving those SPS issues from our perspective, and I think that would be part, probably part of a uh, an agreement that uh, we could uh, we could come to an agreement about. Uh, if we saw any kind of reciprocity on the uh, part of the Europeans. Purdue then was asked if the Trump administration was more focused on getting a limited trade deal done without an agricultural component and then adding the ag piece in at a later date. My perspective is we still think agriculture needs to be included in a trade deal. We have a 10 to $12 billion trade deficit with the EU, uh, and we're dealing with an entity that has almost twice as many consumers as the U.S. and two-thirds of arable land. We don't think that makes any sense. We think uh, it should be even at best, maybe even a trade surplus based on those numbers. So from our perspective, we fully expect if we're going to have any kind of trade agreement with the EU, uh, then that agriculture would be in, engaged in it. The, the Rose Garden ceremony where Juncker uh, indicated that uh, their perspective was they could not be a deal with agriculture. We're not suggesting initially that uh, – tariffs have to be on the table, but certainly the uh, SPS issues have to be addressed and the non-tariff barriers, which are a a fairly formidable uh, barrier to U.S. exports to the EU. During the call, the secretary was asked about trade talks directly with the United Kingdom. We have not spoken to the U.K. I'll be traveling there uh, before the uh, G20 in Saudi and going to the U.K., giving them a little bit of time to get their their uh, situation more settled to talk about that. I believe our administration has had some uh, discussions with them. Uh, But then the timeline on the other, I was encouraged to see that uh, the uh, president of the EU uh, and our president, President Trump, were very uh, conversant and friendly regarding a weeks, not months timeline on EU progress. So I'm I'm encouraged by that. We've uh, we provided our negotiator, Ambassador Lighthizer, with the technical aspects and the things that we think that the EU is capable of providing that would help to balance that trade uh, relationship between the United States and the EU. Purdue also was asked whether he sensed a lessening of opposition by EU officials on the issue of genetic modification of plants and animals. You know, it depends on who you speak to. Uh, I visited with farmers at a, at a good Belgian farm, a great farmer there who was very proud of his uh, Belgian blue cattle. They were very impressive cattle. I met with him and some of his colleagues, and that evening we had dinner with uh, some of the farm cooperative groups from around Europe, and they're very concerned about their livelihood. I talked to them about 
uh, that we as a, a United States agree in sustainability, both in the environment, both in our social sustainability of the affordability and the availability of food for everyone. But there was also a third leg of that stool, which is economic sustainability. And if our producers cannot make a living and a livelihood, uh, they certainly cannot fulfill the first two. And I think European farmers, as you can see by the by the tractor protest, are very concerned about their constraints that they're being placed under uh, as pinched in with the public opinion regarding uh, biotechnology and modern farming techniques. So it was very concerning that way. In the Netherlands, we visited the, uh, the greenhouse industry. We went to the very famous agricultural uh, 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 university, Bingen, and uh, it was very, uh, very impressive what they're doing in greenhouse technology. And uh, it was also, we visited a a private entity there was uh, a great copper crest, which was growing small greens for restaurants that uh, was extremely impressive. I think we can learn a lot from the technology there as we look to, uh, again, have environmental sustainability of lowering our footprint and greenhouse gases and a more circular form of agricultural production for our food. Also during the call, Purdue was asked to weigh in on the coronavirus and what it might mean for China in light of its recent phase one trade agreement with the U.S. As you might imagine, we don't really know that yet. We would love and pray for a very quick uh, resolution and conclusion to the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, but it's already dislodged a number of people. You know that travel has disrupted. I think the last number I saw were 46 million people sheltering in place in uh, China, their Lunar New Year. Uh, so it obviously is going to have some uh, ramifications economy-wide, uh, which we uh, hope will not uh, uh, inhibit uh, the purchase goals that we have for this year that way. We'll have to look at that and see. But uh, the fact is, the honest answer is we just don't know yet, but we're hoping for a very quick conclusion. Well, a couple hours after the call ended, President Trump added his long-awaited signature to the USMCA agreement, a trade deal between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada that replaces NAFTA. Now hear from Trump about the significance of the agreement. And in a true sense, it's also a partnership with Mexico and Canada and ourselves against the world. It's really a trade partnership, if you look at it that way. Canada will finally provide greater access for American dairy. Canada's opening up. It will grow annual exports to our neighbors by an estimated $315 million. Poultry exports to Canada are expected to rise by at least 50%, and egg export could increase by 500%. Our thanks to the USDA for that audio. Well, next up this week at the 101st American Farm Bureau Convention and Trade Show in Austin, Texas, we have the chance to catch up with Adrian DeSutter, an Illinois behavioral health consultant and agriculture wellness advocate who's joined forces with Farm Bureau to discuss mental health issues on the farm. She shared her insights on the troubling crisis, as well as signs family and friends can look for when they suspect someone might be struggling with depression. Adrian, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're coming at this from a, a perspective of not only being a 
mental health professional, but also being a farmer. Absolutely. I wasn't raised on a farm, but I met my now husband about eight years ago, who is a fourth generation corn and soybean farmer in Illinois. And so, um, you know, they say that when you marry the farmer, you marry the farm. And that's absolutely been the case in my position. But, um, but I'm actually a trained counselor. I was a school counselor for six years and have a degree in education in that. So got a little bit of background in both um, you know, the mental health side of things and also the, the agriculture life. And in the news conference today, Scott Vanderwall, who is the uh, vice president of Farm Bureau, and also a farmer in South Dakota, spoke about the uh, self-esteem and self-worth of a, a farmer is tied so much to some of the same things that make them great but also can come as a detriment. Absolutely. There are several personality traits among farmers. And, you know, everyone's different, obviously. But in general, the things that make us good farmers sometimes stand in the way of our mental wellness. For example, um, farmers are very self-reliant. When something, equipment breaks down or something, the first thing they do, they they don't call right away to get things fixed. They figure out how they can do it themselves, how they can kind of work around the problem. They're very solution focused. Um, so that that self-reliance is something that is an excellent trait among farmers. However, it puts up that barrier that when they need help, it's not something they're necessarily willing or, or um, ready to reach out for. In addition, farmers um, are risk takers. Um, and again, the best farmers are the best risk takers, but at the same time, if you make a wrong decision, uh, even when it's beyond your control, how that outcome comes, um, that's that's something that can really cause a lot of stress to you and, and even puts us into a state of depression at times. So farmers are very perseverant, very ambitious, very hardworking. They want to push through things um, and push through issues, but at the same time, there's a point where we have to stop or we have to slow down and we have to realize um, that that we're not invincible and, um, you know, we don't have to do our everything ourselves. It seems like a great many of them are very introspective and uh, of very few words. Yeah, definitely. And I think part of that is just because the nature of the of the career and the lifestyle is a very isolated one. Um, they don't necessarily have to go out and talk to people all the time. Um, you know, again, some farmers are very excited about going to, to coffee on Sunday morning with friends, going to church and being in, in those social um, aspects. But then there are often, um, you know, people who, who that's why they chose farming is because they don't have to be so social. Um, so, yeah, again, maybe they don't have that comfortability reaching out and expressing how they feel about something or expressing the stresses that are going on. We've brought them up a number of times here on the program, but I want to make sure that we reiterate them. If folks are listening to this, what are some of the signs that they should be looking for? Sure. And, and, you know, unfortunately, there is not a magic formula. That's really the thing we have to remember is that we can list off all sorts of signs. But the biggest thing we do is follow our gut and notice those changes in someone's typical behavior. So um, if someone typically, you know, if you notice that someone is suddenly coming to the farm looking very disheveled, and that's not the way that they typically appear, um, you know, that's something that you want to take note of. If you notice um, that someone's uh, farmstead um, or livestock look, again, more disheveled than, t- than normal, 
something that you want to think about maybe reaching out. Um, at home, you can see changes in um, you know eating habits or sleeping habits. Um, certainly in mood, we see oftentimes in, in stressed men, irritability and anger. And if we notice that that lasts more than two weeks or three weeks, um, or we notice multiple symptoms, uh, multiple signs of, of stress going on, um, to the point where it's changing their ability to function, that's again, you know, that, that next step of when stress has become something more and we really need to reach out and, and at least be ready to, to ask how things are going with a, a real, you know, genuine desire to want to know the answer. What are some of the resources that you point people towards when they ask for help? I think the greatest resource is ourself first of all, um, because again, if so, if you're not willing to ask and, and have that conversation with someone and, and um, you know, show that empathy and validate their concerns, um, you know, they're not going to, to get to those other professional resources. So the de definitely the first thing we have to do is have that comfortability, um, you know, asking how people are doing and, 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 and listening, you know, um, not jumping right away into solutions, but, but first just being a human being and having that conversation. Um, when you get to that point that you're able to provide some resources, um, in, in cases of crisis, um, if you're worried about harm of, of someone, definitely calling 911 or going to the emergency room or calling a suicide hotline is the first thing, you know, you need to do. If you're not quite at that immediate point, though, um, just going to your, your primary care doctor is um, kind of the first step. And if, uh, if that's not something you're comfortable with, you can also um, look up a behavioral health provider um, or even you calling your insurance company to see what providers are in your network or if there are other options like teletherapy where you can virtually talk to someone. You won't even have to leave the farm to do that. So, yeah. Well, Adrian, we thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track and appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. The more you guys are here to, to spread this message, the more we break down those barriers, break down that stigma and that negative connotation. And we really help people get to, um, to places where uh, they can receive, receive the help that they need. You can follow Adrian on Twitter. It's so hope, grow hope. That's so, S-O-W, hope, grow hope. Well, next up, we hear from Joe Parsons, the director of the USDA's methodology division and chair of the Agricultural Statistics Board for the National Agricultural Statistics Service. The organization's data gives the nation its most accurate snapshot of what ag production looks like from month to month and year to year. It's a big job. A team of about 800 people collect and analyze statistical data on nearly every facet of agriculture. NAS also conducts the Census of Agriculture every five years to provide the only source of consistent, comparable, and detailed agriculture data for every county in America. And Joe, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Hi, how are you? Yeah, my name is Joe Parsons. I serve as chair of the Ag Statistics Board here at USDA's National Ag Statistics Service. And I have final sign-off on all of our uh, more than 450 Ag Statistics reports we release every year. And uh, so much of that work, I, I lean on, uh, I can tell you, a lot of that work myself in, in preparing for this show and also some of the print content we do, just an invaluable service, uh, all the data collected that can really help give a great picture of what's going on in the ag industry. Yeah, thank you for that. Yes, you know, we're blessed in the United States to have the best agricultural statistics uh, uh, data in the world. We're the envy of the world, actually, and, and, and thanks in no small part to 
farmers and ranchers and agribusinesses that provide the data and provide cooperation with us to be able to produce these data that show a clear picture of uh, U.S. agriculture and also help all ag stakeholders really uh, uh, prepare for the challenges in front of, in front of us. And so many of the great uh, things that, uh, that they get involved in, they will uh, give you the uh, census of agriculture. They do a, uh, a number of reports on, on dairy, on, on grain, on trade, and anything that you're curious about. And they're very up to date, which is what I like. So, some uh, over the years looking at other statistical services, you might be looking at uh, five-year-old, 10-year-old data. And w when you're trying to get a clear snapshot of the here and now, that just isn't going to cut it. And that's right. I mean, uh, there's always a demand to understand where we're at today and uh, and the things that are shaping U.S. agriculture. So we do produce data on an extremely wide variety uh, of, of items within agriculture because U.S. agriculture is so diverse. Uh, we recently published the uh, Census of Agriculture, and uh, uh, and most recently we do some follow-on studies behind that Census of Agriculture. So, for example, we released some detailed data on uh, the irrigation and water management uh, in the United States, and also uh, we just uh, released a report on the Census of Aquaculture. So, those that grow, uh, you know, fish and crustaceans and other things in the in the United States. So, those are both follow-ons to that Census of Agriculture. And obviously we do the uh, reports that everybody knows, the corn and soybeans, the production uh, amounts in the United States, and also the grain and storage, for example. So those are all very important reports, and, and they all serve different constituencies within U.S. agriculture. How can farmers and ranchers best help you do the job to the best of your ability? Well, one way is participating in our surveys, and one of the things that we've really been working on recently is improving the uh, experience that our farmers and ranchers have. So we've improved our online questionnaire, and we've revamped it so that uh, it, it works good with mobile devices, and we've built it so that uh, if questions don't pertain to you, that you easily be able to make that interview shorter and less burdensome for you. So that's one way we're trying to improve the experience. Uh, we've also been improving our website so that it's easy to find data out on it and uh, also when we have uh, really high demand reports we've worked hard to increase the capacity uh, so that our website works very efficiently and fast for all that come to it uh, when there's large data needs. When you start to look at the analytics what are some of the most popular uh, studies and surveys that, that uh, folks are looking for? You know really everything's different but you know certainly our crop progress that comes out weekly is very popular. Our census of agriculture if you're looking sort of how the change structure of U.S. agriculture down to the national, state, and county level is really important. And obviously our crop production and livestock reports uh, that are really topical and help uh, folks understand where the market is and, and sort of what the supply situation is for U.S. agriculture are all, all very popular products. Well, if you are a data geek like I am, make sure you go check out their website. Uh, where can they find you? www.nas.usda.gov and just great you, you'll find yourself getting on there and just start poking around in some of the different categories and you can lose a lot of time pretty quickly uh, just delving into some of those uh, numbers because they're they're absolutely fascinating and give a great snapshot of where we are in this country in, in terms of agricultural production and exports and imports and so forth so make sure you go check them out and Joe we sure appreciate you taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. Absolutely and thanks to the farmers and ranchers out there that work with us to produce these great data. While at the 
the Farm Bureau Trade Show, we had the opportunity to stop by and chat with AGI District Sales Representative Jeff Wilson about his company's AGI SureTrack, powerful cloud-based software that helps farmers manage every facet of their operation. With complete farm sensors to farm management with grain analysis and even a grain exchange sales tool, the seed-to-plate approach is helping revolutionize efficiency and increase profitability on the farm. Jeff, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Thank you, Brent. So tell me a bit about SureTrack. This is cloud-based software, very intuitive stuff, easy for the farmer to use. Give us an example of how this is working for farmers today. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. You know, Brent, uh, one thing that I have found with the SureTrack, of course, SureTrack, you know, when you talk to farmers and you mention to them uh, technology or computers, you know, they have a tendency to, to shy away. And you mentioned it just earlier that it's important to understand that it's very user-friendly. It gives the farmer the ability to trace uh, and track their seed selections. And so we start with yield facts, and yield facts is giving them the opportunity to select the right seed based on what they're trying to accomplish, whether they're growing for yield or purpose. And we're seeing a big shift in the industry now where producers are asking for specific characteristics in seed. And so this gives the farmers the ability to kind of have be in the driver's seat of what they're trying to do and, and market their own grain. So um, we have Market Manager. There's another uh, another platform area within SureTrack Farm that gives those farmers that, that added assurance that they're going to be able to market the best price they possibly can and not necessarily get just a commodity price for their grain. It's important that these farmers understand that why can't they make the money um, on their, on their hard work and building quality seed. That's an important aspect of it. And of course we roll into to bin manager, which also gives that farmer the option to control fans, only run in air when it's productive air. Um, and that alone can save a farmer 30 to 40% of their airflow or their fan usage uh, by controlling and using the only right type of air. And, and, and it, it brings quality. You know, farmers spend a lot of hard work and time in the field planting these seeds uh, to only let them set in a bin, and that's their finished work. So why not put an eye on it and, spe- you know, specific, be specific with what they're trying to accomplish? And uh, we're seeing a big shift in the industry today with that. And so from there, where does it go? Yeah, so from there, that's when we use our, our market manager. Our market manager allows that farmer to select their zip code and find the markets within their area. And, of course, that's our job, too. We have a strategic division of SureTrack that, that helps to develop um, side markets, basically, going to producers and asking those guys, um, what, what is it worth to you to bring you the good quality grain that you're looking for? And so instead of shifting through grain carts of corn just to get one one selection of what they're asking for, um, they can just they can put in there what they're looking for and look for the farmers out there that have it and, and directly market to those farmers. So if folks want to know more about AGI SureTrack, where can they go to learn more? Yeah, so go to agisuretrack.com and you can log on there. Um, you can also call the office at 855-293-5607 and they'll get you in touch with the right representative for that area. Okay. Well, we sure appreciate you taking the time, Jeff, to join us here on Fast Line Fast Track. Make sure you go check out that website and check out AGI SureTrack. We've been talking with Jeff Watson with AGI. Thank you, Brent. One of the neat aspects of the Farm Bureau trade show was the showcase of some of the innovative local Farm Bureau groups from around the country. As I was walking by, the showcase of the impactful work being done by the Belmont County, Ohio Farm Bureau caught my attention. 
They pack meals for food insecure school children in their county. And Devin Kane was kind enough to tell us more about the program. I hope it's something that will inspire more farmers and ranchers and their families to take action in their own communities. If you could, Devin, tell us a bit about what you're doing here. Yeah, what we did is we, we contacted all the schools in our county and found out there was four schools in our county that had the backpack program with a need of 260 backpacks packages each week. So we went out through the county, face-to-face, mailed letters out, talked to businesses, got money donations. We set a goal of $40,000 and ended up getting $45,000. So then I contacted the outreach program and told them we had $45,000 to spend, and they had seven meals that we could try. They sent all seven meals to us. The board tried all seven meals, and then we picked three that we thought the kids would like best. So then we organized a, a packing event on July 20th, and got about 400 volunteers to come to a local school and and package all the meals. Once we got all the meals packaged, we distributed them to the schools that that had the need, and then they put them in in the backpacks every week, went home with the the kids in need that were hungry. That's great. About how many kids is that serving? 260 every week. That's incredible, incredible work. Tell me a bit about the meals that are in there. Uh, We packaged three meals. We packaged macaroni and cheese, instant cinnamon oatmeal and minestrone soup. Um, all you have to do is add water, heat the water up, and then they got six servings of, of a nutritious meal. And what kind of feedback have you gotten from recipients and from people in the school district? Every administrator that I've talked to so far, the kids have, have really liked it and, and really appreciate having it because they what they get in their backpack before they would eat on the bus before they got home so their parents wouldn't take it from them. Now they have enough food to try to get them back to school on Monday to get a hot meal back at school. So tell me a bit about your farming operation. Um, I'm I'm a fourth-generation dairy farmer. Um, We used to to milk in Stanchion Barn. We're milking about 62 cows. We just just started up two Laley robots two weeks ago. So we took a huge step. It's just me and my father now, so we're... We're taking the next next step and see what's going to happen. So with initiatives like the backpack packing program, tell me why you feel like it's so important for farmers and ranchers to get involved in their community. I think you just need to get the awareness out there and, and get the community to see what, what needs we have in, in our community and, and keep the good nutritious products coming in that, that the farmers and ranchers are, are planting and growing for for nutritious meals. Well, if you're curious about any of this or if you want to replicate this anywhere else in your community, whether you're associated with Farm Bureau or not, check out the Belmont County Farm Bureau. Check out their website, OFBF.org. And you could also call the office at 740-425-3681. Make sure you ask about their backpack program. But we've been speaking with Devin Kane, who's with the Belmont County Farm Bureau in Ohio. And Devin, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Fast Line Fast Track. I thank you. Finally, from the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention, I was able to spend some time with Sherry Saylor, the chair of the AFB Women's Leadership Committee. They're involved in a number of charitable projects, but none more personal and powerful than their involvement with Ronald McDonald House Charities. We talked about that partnership and some of the other great things the women of AFB are doing to be a light in communities across America. Sherry, welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. 
thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here and celebrate uh, farmers and ranchers all across the country with you today. And the Women's Leadership Committee has so many great programs, but one of those that I want to focus on that, uh, that, that touches uh, mine and my family's life is uh, uh, the partnership you guys have with Ronald McDonald House. Uh, uh, we have a uh, daughter with, uh, with some medical challenges that uh, has had to have uh, a number of surgeries during her lifetime uh, through Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and uh, we didn't really know a whole lot about uh, uh, the Ronald McDonald House other than that's where you throw some of your loose change when you're at McDonald's and, uh, and you don't really grasp what it means to you until you're in the thick of a situation and uh, uh, you find yourself in, in really extended hospital stays away from home, uh, not really knowing what to do. And you guys have stepped in to provide some support for Ronald McDonald House. Tell us a bit about uh, what that looks like. Sure. We have reinvigorated, if you will, our relationship with Ronald McDonald House Charities. They've always been a, a favorite charity of the American Farmer Women's Leadership Committee because to be frank, many of our members have utilized their services through the years. Uh, as you said, when you get in a situation where you need a place to stay and you can't afford a hotel room every single night for months on months, that's what they do. And it's a, in your darkest hours, they're there for you. So our challenge this year was to come up with a amount of money that we could donate to them to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the American Farm Bureau. So we came up with $100,000, and we put that out to our membership across the country, and they responded in a magnificent way. And just through donations, we raised $237,000. So we uh, doubled our, uh, our goal. And this is not just a one-time event. We are going to keep doing this every year. Whether we can sustain that level, I'm not sure, but we're gonna continue to support what they do. And we not only give them money, we give them food that the folks have to eat when they're there. So we've gone in and actually created meals for them, left food for them, bought food for them. We give them books, ag-accurate books, so we promote agriculture while we're there. And it's been a really great partnership. Many of our members, as I said, have utilized this, uh, this charity, and we will continue to maintain that relationship with them. So tell us about some of the other projects that uh, you guys are working on for 2020. Yeah, one of the things we're doing is we do something called Communications Boot Camp. We bring 15 women in twice a year to Washington, D.C., and they're put through an intensive boot camp in communications through media training, uh, through public speaking, through advocating at the uh, state house so, or at the local level, state house, and at the national level. So they go through this about a four-day training with some really expert people in the field, and then they go out and spread the message of agriculture. The focus of our committee is leadership training of women, giving them their voice, giving them confidence to go out and speak. And that's one of the ways we do it. So Communications Boot Camp is, is a great thing. It's open to any Farm Bureau woman in the country, and they can apply. And we hold it in uh, June, and then again in October. We're also gonna be in D.C. for National Ag Day this year. And we're gonna do a women's fly-in, and we're gonna bring all of our women in, hit the hill, talk about all the issues that are going on politically that affect farmers and ranchers, as well as support National Ag Day, where we bring uh, attention to how important food is in this country. If women want to get involved in the uh, in the boot camps or, or any of the other programs that uh, you're involved with, how can they find out more information about those? It's pretty easy to do. They just go on the AFB website, and on that website, there will be all kinds of information about the women's program, and if you hit that, it's going to take you to Communications Boot Camp and all the other activities that we do. So AFB.com.
Excellent. Well, Sherry, we thank you so much for all the work uh, that uh, you're doing. And uh, on behalf of all the families who uh, are actively using uh, Ronald McDonald or have used it, we thank you so much for that. Thank you very much. And I'm so glad that it was able to help your family and all the other families that are across this country who need that. So it's a wonderful thing. We all need to be involved. And now we take you to Hank Snow's iconic Rainbow Ranch in Madison, Tennessee, for the music of Paul Bogart, presented by the Ernest Tubb Record Shop, 417 Broadway in downtown Nashville, Tennessee. Paul not only plays traditional country music the way it was meant to be played, he's also a two-time American Quarter Horse Association team roping world champion. He's got a great story to tell and some great music for you as well. Can't wait for you to hear it all right now. Paul, (laughs) welcome into Fast Line Fast Track. Yeah, thank you. Good to be here. Yeah, trying to uh, uh, bring anything with a Western vibe in and make it commercially viable not an easy thing these days you know um i'll agree with that i'll agree but it's the cool thing about doing what i'm doing um so i say that my music kind of fits under a cowboy hat but there's still a huge demographic that Mm -hmm. crave that music and and you're you're reaching out to those folks and i so i appreciate this podcast and what you guys are doing um, but yeah, there's there's still definitely an audience for for my my style of country music. Yeah, I love it, man. It's just it's great stuff, and to, to me, it's what country music uh, should be all about. It's what I grew up on, and uh, I may be a little bit biased, but uh, <laughs> me too, <laughs> man, man. I think it's great. Uh, and uh, Paul has uh, had cuts written, recorded by. Think about this: Porter Wagner, Wade Hayes, Roger Krieger, Kevin Fowler, and most recently, uh, only one of two outside cuts on the great songwriter Red Stiggles' new uh, record. Hats off to the cowboy and. Man, if you think about Red, he just had a statue erected uh, in the stockyards in Fort Worth uh, a couple months ago. That's a huge honor. What about that, man? How cool is that? Man, just an incredible guy. Uh, and this is where i got to put in a shameless plug. Now we got to get one of our guy, Ernest Tubb, in there. Uh, that's a pet <laughs> project uh, myself and uh, Glenn Douglas Tubb have been working on for some time. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad to see Red get it. He deserves it. But we got to get the uh, Texas Troubadour in there yeah. as well. Yeah. But, man, uh, when, I'm, when I read off those names just some legendary names to, to, to be mentioned alongside that's got to be quite an honor for you yeah you know I, um it's it is an honor good grief i mean to have a song recorded by red steagall holy smokes i mean this this is an artist i've listened to since i was a kid and and, it, and it's not necessarily that i am that i'm a that i'm trying to be red steagall that that's not it necessarily because um, his his style of music is different than mine. It's definitely it's his thing. Sure. Um, so, but it was an honor. I, I wrote the song with with Trent Wilman and Shane Miner, who are team roping buddies of mine and and writers here in Nashville. And, and uh, they the song was pitched to Red, and and the fact that he recorded it was just it's like wow, holy smokes! So and I, I got to listen to the record. The full length record is great. Um, Hats off the Cowboys is the record, and it's just. It was just fabulous. I think the song, my song, was second or third one on the record, but a pretty, pretty exciting day for sure. So uh, it, you brought up uh, team roping. You are originally from uh, Northeast Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and roping and, and that way of life uh, has played a huge part in your life. Yeah. So I, I'm one of three kids. I'm, I have an older sister and a younger brother, and we grew up on a small ranch in Oolaga, Oklahoma, northeast of Tulsa, and uh, my dad. As a when I was just a little kid, he was raising Angus purebred Angus cows and running a cow calf operation, and and uh, 
then had a big sale and kind of got out of the cow deal. Uh, and right right after that sale, we started we started team roping when I was probably I don't know eight or nine. And um, he so he used to team rope when he and rope calves when he was in high school. And it was like this this is something that me and my boys can do, and it kind of stuck with me. Uh, my brother ropes and he he can rope, but he it's been a long time since he's thrown a leg over a horse. But <laughs> um, for me, it stuck. I I rope. Dad, matter of fact, over Christmas the Christmas holiday, um, we interrupted our our family Christmas get-togethers once again for like the twenty eighth time to rope in this same event wow. in Tulsa at the Tulsa Holiday Circuit, and we team rope and rope calves. And Dad's Dad's sixty seven. Um, so it's just cool to it's cool to kind of continue this this uh, this thing, you know. And Dad's raising he's raising cow horse bred horses. Um, that the idea for him is to raise these American Quarter horses that are bred to go compete in the cow horse futurities. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the culls, the ones that don't make it as as three year olds, then I'll I'll bring them to Tennessee and make team roping horses out of them or calf horses out of them so and it's been a neat deal we i've competed in the aqha the american quarter horse association for years and years since i was a kid and um so it's nice to get it's nice to get a a super great bred cow horse and then get to rope on him because normally he's quite an athlete so it's working out well and it's a neat breeding program that dad's created and and i'm i'm getting to continue doing the, the cowboy thing so now you're being a little bit humble about it because i understand that uh your american quarter horse association world champion uh, <laughs> title holder in team roping as well you, you know it um the aqha has been good to me um it, like i say dad's raised some incredible horses that i've been fortunate to get to ride and, and train on and and compete on and i have that their their world championship show is in november each year and um I've I've been fortunate to finish at the top a time or three, and this year it was, it was great. It was super cool because a mare that I had started this has been ten years ago. Um, I started her here in Tennessee, and then she's she's raised three babies, and they're all Palomino babies. Huh. And I was showing, I was roping on those three, uh, a, a stud, a gilding, and a mare, and they all they were all yellow. And I and I made the finals on all three of those. So it was it was oh, a pretty wow. neat deal. Um, I wound up winning second and third, and I think it was ninth or tenth on the other one this year. So it's been a successful. It's been a neat run. That's fun. Truly a family affair. Though. Yeah, yeah, sure enough. And I've got I've got a three year old son. Speaking of family affair, I've got a, a three year old and a one year old, two two boys, and they so far they they seem to like it. You That's know, they, cool. They want to ride around with me, and we we. Uh, we have a big time. So, where did music come into the picture, man? So, it's it was all it was always there uh, throughout. You know, um, my uh, <laughs> at some point when I was five or six, somebody got me a harmonica, and my mom my mom played played the piano at the church house. You know, from the time I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was always music. So when mom was practicing her piano at the house, I would jump in and play harmonica just. Because it was there was music going on, uh, so our, our our Christmas gatherings or you know family get-togethers, it's like a big jam. You know, there's a That's mandolin, cool. there's a guitar, there's a set of spoons somewhere, and a fiddle or whatever. You know, so uh, really on both sides, my dad's and my mom's side. But 
Um, so kind of all along there was there was music, and I kind of you know as as you go through high school and college, you kind of figure yourself out a little bit, you know, and and you kind of come into the person you're supposed to be. Um, and I guess it was high school. I started you know you start playing little little gigs, you know, wherever you can get in as a seventeen year old mm-hmm. to play, and. Uh, so we, you know, we we go. I say we. My brother, my brother was a great musician as well. He's he's a guitar player and a singer. And we would go. We'd just get in and go play as kids. Well, then in college, um, I guess that's when I decided it was like this is something that I could I want to do. So when I wasn't entered in a college rodeo on a weekend, if I had the weekend off, I would try to book a show somewhere between the Red River and Kansas. You uh-huh. know, uh, and. We gathered up a handful of musicians there out of out of Tulsa, and we'd go play on the weekends that I wasn't rodeoing. So it was it was always a um, a part of of life, you know, in amongst the the ranching and so forth. Uh-huh. So, so at what point did you think, man, I've got something here that uh, that, that I could take to Nashville, or did, what, was going to Texas and doing that an option, or what, what, what all weighed into your decision to ultimately land here in Nashville? Well, so I I, I guess I can kind of tip my hat to to Garth Brooks when I was in college. So I went to Connor State College, which is a, a junior college south of Muskogee, and rodeoed for them two years. And then um, was recruited to a, a small university in Claremore, Oklahoma, Rogers State University. And they had a rodeo team. And um, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll get my bachelor's degree here there in Claremore. Hmm. Um, well, everybody kind of knew because Ulaga is a small town. I mean, there's a, there's a stoplight, but a, a small town. That's the town I grew up in. And Claremore is not 20 miles from there. But that area, everybody knew that. Garth Brooks had a place right there close, within 12 miles to my folks. Um, and it just, you know, everybody had their Garth story. They'd run into him at the at the grocery store or whatever. Um, well, anyway, we were playing a... To answer your question as far as when I decided like to, to make this a profession, like to do this and come to town... Um, I actually put up a a flyer. <laughs> I put up a bunch of flyers around around the you know fifty mile radius for a hometown concert. Uh, it was one summer I was out of school and and uh, I guess he Garth saw it at this greasy little uh-huh. breakfast joint. He saw this flyer and for more information you could call my parents' home phone number. You know, small town uh-huh. Oklahoma, and he had one of his guys call and. So, that, you know, my mom, I, it was summertime. Mom got the phone. She hands it to me. And she says, uh, and the guy says, hey, this is Floyd. Um, I work for Garth Brooks. And he saw your flyer. And he would like to meet you. Um, just wanted to see what your availability was. And I thought, this is a prank call. There's <laughs> no way. This is a prank call. So I, we ended that phone call. And, and then he called me back the next week. And he's like, have you, have you checked your schedule? And I was like, I don't even know if this is real. But he came and picked me up the next day and took me to where everybody knew Garth lived on Keatonville Hill. And and sure enough, we went in the gate and went up the front door and I, I met Garth Brooks. Wow. And like from that uh, that introduction, he's he's been an encouragement to me for 
quite a, for since then. Um, I mean, I don't I don't bug him, but um, he has been an encouragement. And that was <clears throat> in one of our first conversations. He's like, man, why don't you do this? Like, why don't you get your degree, your business degree? And if you want to take this seriously, like you, you, he said, you do, you're a great roper because you're in this area. You're, you can go to a jackpot team roping any night of the week right here in Northeast Oklahoma. If you want to take music seriously, you got to go to Nashville. He said, people would say you got to go to Austin or Nashville. And he said, for me, I'd go to Nashville. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, you, you wait. Those, those words from a guy like that are pretty heavy. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, I'm, here I am. <laughs> you know? But I, I guess I can attribute that to those conversations with Garth. So what year did you get to Nashville, and what has that experience been like for you since you've gotten here? Yeah. I think I think 06 is when I got to town. Um, and it's just, it's what a ride. Holy smokes. I mean, good grief. It, uh, there, there's been... <laughs> It's a grind. I'll, sure. I'll say that. But by the grace of God, here, here we are, however many years later, and it's making us a living. My wife, Tanya, stays home with the boys, and, and music is making us a living. I mean, can you imagine? Are you kidding me? It's <laughs> wild to think that, that you can stay afloat um, and and live a great life playing music. And I, I can remember that conversation with, with Garth literally sitting on a tailgate and he said the same thing, and I thought, yeah, but you make a bazillion dollars <laughs> doing what you do. But but even still, I, here I am on this side of it, and I just think, holy smokes. So live shows, I sing a handful of demos, you know, for different songwriters and a few, a few publishing checks. It's just like, yeah, this we're doing it. That's awesome. You know, it, and it's been, it has, it has been a grind, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade it, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> so what's on the horizon for you here? Man, there's a, it's I got a, a good 2020 upcoming. Uh, next month we'll go to uh head to San Antonio to play for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. They've hired us a handful of times for their annual convention and it moved to San Antonio this year and I'm stoked. I love playing in that city. We have a few shows in Texas and then we go to Let's see, Oklahoma and South Dakota and Wyoming, and we're bouncing around the month of February. And well, one of the things on the calendar here, a new single, Never Grow Out of It, yeah. is going to be released on the 31st of January. Yeah. Tell us about it. Man, so that was a song I, I, I write regularly with, uh, with Cassidy Lynn and Dan Wilson. They're two of my favorite people in town. Uh, just just. You get to be great friends with who you're writing with, and then and then some folks you just kind of keep them at arm's length, and you write and you go on about life. But these two, we've just kind of fallen into a great friendship with their families and so forth. And they they introduced me to a guy, Tommy Carlos, and I didn't know Tommy, but they said, "Hey, would you want to write with him as well?" And I was like, "Sure." I don't know if they were double booked with him or what the deal was, <laughs> but we wrote this song. I'll never grow out of it, uh, and I just it wasn't my idea. I think it, I think it was. Um, Tommy's idea, and I at the end of the end of the ride that day, I was like, "Geez, let's do this again." That was great. Um, so we, I, Trent Wilman is a he produced my last record, and um, so I went in with with Trent, and we we recorded this song and a few others. But after hearing the final mix on these tunes, it was like, "Geez, that really that really worked." Yeah. 
Um, so we decided Zach Farnham from 117. He, he's my manager, and we've been kicking around what what to release next. And so we chose that one. And I, I love the song. I'm excited about it. it I, I think the uh, the band the day that we recorded it just knocked it out of the park. So excited for the world to hear that song as well. Uh, that's excellent. Well, we uh, we definitely want people to check that out. Uh, I know you're doing something right here because they tell me that. Uh, uh, of your uh, popular songs, you've had more than three million views on the internet, and also uh, more than a million streams on Pandora, which doesn't happen by accident. So, <laughs> man, yeah. that's uh, that, that's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm thankful. You know, as an independent artist, it's always uh, an encouragement to to look at actual numbers and see that man, people are responding to the music that that you write and you put out, and and I am very grateful for for the fans who, who um, are paying attention. They, they support the music, you know, and they, they show up the, to the shows and they, they want to hear what you're doing. So it's, I'm very thankful for that. I'm grateful. And, and Paul's one of the guys that, uh, it, you know, you'll hear me say on this program time and time again that country music, true traditional country music is not dead. You just have to know where to look for it. And I get <laughs> so tired of people, people saying that it isn't or the country music genre is dead. Uh, what you might be hearing on terrestrial radio may not sound a whole lot like what uh, uh, it did in the days of uh, Hank Snow and Ernest Tubb and Hank Williams and uh, at all. But uh, I can tell you what, it is alive and well, and this is one of the guys doing it right. So make sure you check him out. If folks want to hear more about you, where can they check out your, your stuff? Yeah, so my, my website is just paulbogart.com, and it's like Humphrey, mm-hmm. B-O-G-A-R-T, paulbogart.com. The socials are, uh, let's see, you know, I think it's I think it's at Paul Bogart Music on all the socials. Okay, so make sure you go search those out and follow him. Help him get his numbers up and uh, interact with you. Is that uh, some people that's a burden and some people it's a blessing? How, how do you feel about social media? Do you, do you get real active on it? Or? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh-huh. if somebody sends me a message, I, I do my dead level best to try to respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to call it a burden. Uh-huh. Um, it, it is. I mean, I, some days it's like. You look at it and you think, good grief, there's a pile of stuff i got to respond to. But it's these are a pile of supporters that are sure. loving your music and they're buying your music and you're, they're keeping you afloat. Yeah. If I didn't like it, I shouldn't have signed up for it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, yeah. no, I'm, I'm, again, I'm very thankful for it. Far worse to put it out there and hear crickets. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what, what about creating content for social media? Is that something you find yourself doing a lot of? Or? You know, I, I'll say that I'm not – I'm not one that I, I don't feel like I'm good at it. Uh-huh. Um, I, I, I team rope, I rope calves, I, I, I write songs and I play them for folks. Uh-huh. I like to get in the outdoors. I like to bow hunt. I like, you know, I, I feel like I'm a pretty regular kind of guy and I'm not one that just takes my phone and I'm shooting selfies of my, you know, sure. of, of me doing this all the time. And I, so I, I will say it is a, I'm learning to be better at it because I need to be better at it. Uh-huh. Uh, so Zach, Zach Farnham, the manager, he he's uh, he's he will lovingly. <laughs> um, I don't want to. How do you say it? He'll encourage me to encourage get. You. Yeah, he'll <laughs> encourage me to do, do some more of that stuff. So it's, it's it is helpful and it's good. I mean, it, it, we live in. I mean, it's 2020. We you know we got to do it. Yeah, so it's it's good. For sure. Well, I tell you what, uh, Paul, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us here. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, Thank you. I hope everybody will go check out your socials, your website, 
go uh, download his music. Uh, don't just stream it. Go buy some of it so he can keep those kids fed and uh, <laughs> keep the horses fed and everything else. Right. You know, he, he, he needs that. And all these artists need your support. So go out and support them because they're the ones out there doing it right. So, uh, again, Paul, thank you. We're going to go ahead and get you uh, mic'd up, and we're going to let you guys hear some of the music of Paul Bogart. You bet. That old weathered hat He's got more lines and creases Than a Texas road map He stares through the smoke Of a hand-rolled cigarette And thinks about the good old days When it was cattle, not concrete That covered these hills When your word was your contract And you shook on when a man got ahead with hard work and iron will, he can't believe how much has changed. He never had nothing he didn't sweat or bleed for. When life gave him lightning, he rode out the storm, tough as nails and headstrong. Right is right, wrong is wrong. Hit the dirt, brush it off, get back on. God bless them, God help us all when the cowboys are gone. When the movers and shakers and bankers are done, will there be any room left for the free to still run? The kind who ain't scared stick to their guns It's getting hard to find someone like him Who never had nothing he didn't sweat or bleed for When life gave him lightning he rode out the storm tough as nails and headstrong Right is right, wrong is wrong Hit the dirt Brush it off, get back on God bless him God help us all when the cowboys are gone. My knees hit the floor before I go to bed to thank the good Lord. There's a few of us left who never had nothing we didn't sweat or bleed for when life gives us lightning we ride out the storm tough as nails and headstrong right is right wrong is wrong here's to those who keep riding on god bless them god help us all when the cowboys are gone
play you um, I'll play you a song I wrote about the gentleman who built my very first custom-made team rope and saddle. Uh, when I was just a kid, I mentioned it earlier, my dad and I team roped. <clears throat> well, we, we still get to rope together, thankfully. But uh, he and I had won a couple trophy saddles, and um, we decided that the trophy saddles we had won didn't fit our horses all that well. So dad thought, well, why don't we, why don't we sell these maybe a little cheaper made saddles, sell a couple of them, and we'll, we'll have somebody build us a, a custom-made nice one that'll fit the horse that, that I'm riding and fit you. So he, uh, he took me over to Mr. Claude Thomas's house, his saddle shop out behind his house there, and, and uh, we hauled my little gray horse over to Claude's place, um, the little horse I was riding at the time, and he put several saddle trees up on Smoke's back. And uh, we picked a tree that would fit him the best, and then he got my measurements, and he went to work building my saddle. So uh, I'd go over to Claude's shop once a week for a couple months there while he was working on my building the saddle, and and, uh, I'd listen to him tell cowboy stories, and it was like going to the movies. Um, So when he finished this beautiful, fully-tooled saddle, he hands it to me, he says, enjoy the ride. So as a songwriter, I um, I wrote I wrote this song and I played it for his family the day that we buried him. It's called "Enjoy the Ride." I was fifteen. I Most of his life was spent in boots and spurs, breaking colts to ride. Retired in a saddle shop, just ten miles down a black top road from where I grew up back home. He was an artist with the leather and knives and hammers that stamped those oak leaf swirls. He had a cowboy philosophy about golden glory and lonely rodeo girls. He'd say, ain't nothing like a setting sun on the back of a horse when you let him run free. Take it from me. Enjoy the ride like it's your last. Son, this old life sure goes by fast. And sit the saddle tall, and if you should fall, ain't no thing at all. Just dust yourself off, forget your pride, enjoy the ride. Doctors gave him six months, and that was five long years ago. But he was tougher than dirt, and it was just like him to not let anybody know. The friends and neighbors all gathered round Pastor Bill, 
laid him down to rest The wind whispered from the west Enjoy the ride Like it's your last Son, this old life Sure goes by fast and Sit the saddle tall And if you should fall Just dust yourself off Forget your pride Enjoy the ride Enjoy the So this is my uh, my latest single. Release date on this is uh, January thirty first. It's a song called "I'll Never I'll Never Grow Out of It." I remember climbing up in that old bench seat. Static on the radio, my dad and me Riding through town in that red rust Chevy truck He taught me how to drive it when I turned 15 I drove it everywhere like I had somewhere to be Going too fast, now I wish I could have slowed it down No matter It's always gonna be everything I'll ever need I'll always take care of it Could never get enough of it No matter where this life ends up taking me I'll never go out of it It's a better night You'll miss it town On a map dot with nothing but miles around Where everyone knows everything going on As some folks say just can't wait to get gone But I'll never go out of it I'll never get tired of it It's always gonna be Everything I'll ever need I'll always take care of it Could never get enough of it And no matter where this life ends up taking me I'll never go out of it Baby, there are just some things time can like the way I always feel about your love I'll never grow out of it I'll never get tired of it It's always gonna be everything I'll ever need I'll always take care of it 
Those were the incredible true country sounds of our friend Paul Bogart. Please make sure you go check him out at paulbogart.com. Well, the National Farm Machinery Show is drawing closer. Hope you'll be able to join us in Louisville February 12th through the 15th. Come join us for show tapings each day at the Fast Line booth, number 8881 in the south wing of the Kentucky Exposition Center. We're being told that you have to register in order to enter the exhibit halls, and pre-registration is available at farmmachinerieshow.org. If you can't make it to the show and you're in the market for farm equipment, be sure you make your first stop, FastLine.com. Check out the equipment locator with the price comparison tool featuring the Iron Average powered by Iron Solutions. Are you following FastLine Fast Track on social media yet? Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube, and add our Spotify playlist to your library to hear music from past, current, and upcoming guests of the show. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Next week, we'll preview the National Farm Machinery Show from Louisville, Kentucky, as well as the World Ag Expo in Tulare, California. We'll also hear some great country music from rising star Karen Waldrop. Until next time, it's Brent Adams saying thanks for sticking with me and my raspy voice this week. Y'all come back and bring along a friend. You've been listening to Fast Line Fast Track, presented by Fast Line Media Group. To learn more about Fast Line's customer-focused marketing solutions, visit FastLineMediaGroup.com and check out our brand websites, FastLine.com, BigAg.com, and PinkTractor.com. If you have topic suggestions for future podcasts, drop us a line at Brent.Adams at FastLine.com. Yeah.